you may have realized that being healthy feels different than it did in the past now that you're over 50. If you want to maximize your health potential but don't have time to read through overwhelming pages of Google links, this is the show for you. Welcome to Healthy Tips After 50. We love doing the research, finding solutions, talking to health experts, and learning what works and what doesn't. Now, your host. She spent the last 25 years dedicated to feeling her best and is here to share her best findings with you, Susan Rosen. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Susan Rosen. And my guest today is an MD, and her name is Rebecca Allen, and she is a neuropsychiatrist. Is that correct? So she's going to tell us a little bit about what that is, I think, to start. <laughs> but in the meantime, tell us a little bit more about you and, and how you how you ended up in this field and, and what, you, what you're doing. Hi, Susan. Yeah, so um, I started out being very interested in the brain when I was a kid and in high school. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. I was really into this guy called Oliver Sacks, which some of you may remember. Yes. In the nineties. Um, went to hear him speak once, read all of his stuff. Uh, there were some other, um, uh, writers around that time in the nineties who were writing about the brain, Steven Pinker, uh, Dr. Ramachandran. Mm -hmm. So then in, um, undergrad, I was undergrad at Stanford university. I became a psychology major and that was fantastic. Uh, the psychology program at Stanford, it's very heavy into what do we know, but also how do we know it? How do you design an experiment? Mm. How do you criticize an experiment and figure out where the flaws might be and do it again and do it better? So it's all about how we get our knowledge and not just wow. what we already know about the brain. So that I think was a really good foundation and from there went to medical school at Oregon Health and Science University, where I also got a master's of public health in biostatistics and epidemiology. And what that mainly means is that I got a lot of practice in understanding and reviewing the ways that we find out medical information and figure out what's good medical information, what's bad medical information, looking at multiple studies on the same topic and determining, well, do we do we implement something different or is it not good enough yet this data. And I mm -hmm. think that that's been an extremely helpful skill uh, for, well, really for any physician to have, but in my career being um, doing these treatments that are uh, on the cutting edge of psychiatry where things are changing a lot and new data is coming out a lot. It's, it's particularly, uh, particularly good skill to have. And I use all the time. And then, <laughs> so after, um, after Oregon Health and Science University Medical School, I went to Harvard for my residency and fellowship. And my residency was four years standard. And then the last two years of fellowship was the neuropsychiatry fellowship at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And neuropsychiatry is a, I would say still kind of a nebulous term, but basically it means the overlap between the two specialties that uh, look at the brain and treat the brain. So there's neurologists who tend to treat very obviously physical things that you can see on the cellular level or on scans happening that are going wrong in the brain or the spinal cord or the nerves. And then you have psychiatrists who tend to more treat the things that you can't see as much on scans or labs. That's becoming a little bit less true over time. 
Uh, the other way to define it is one's a little bit more physical, the other's a little bit more right. thinking, behavior, and right. mood, okay. right? So I um, I then went into practice uh, where I currently am still in Seattle um, doing brain neuromodulation. So that means using techniques in order to directly treat the brain other than giving people medications that they swallow and then it goes into the bloodstream and then um, gets to the brain that way. So the two, um, the two neuromodulation treatments that uh, were available that I was doing back in 2017, 2018 were electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation. And I still do both of those treatments. And then um, along the way, the past six years uh, have also um, started, we started to offer esketamine and ketamine, uh, which for all intents and purposes is just another medication, but it's one that's kind of hard to administer uh, and um, has a different mechanism of action than the oral medications do. And vagal nerve stimulation, vagus nerve stimulation, uh, we, um, I have a, I have a number of patients who have that device both um, in a study that we're doing and also um, outside mm-hmm. of that study. Uh, and um, in addition, we've, uh, uh, we're participating in a study on a psilocybin as well. Um, so we, yeah. we try very hard in our practice to offer everything that can be done for severe treatment resistant major depressive disorder, uh, short of sort of the inpatient and residential and very therapy focused, but all the biological mm-hmm. Uh, interventions that um, are for the people that have the the most um, the most suffering from these from mood disorders. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um. <clears throat> well, that, that just brings up so many questions. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure that there are some people, maybe not. I don't know. That that might hear it and say psilocybin. Wow, isn't that you know? I mean that that was stuff that we all took when we were in our twenties. That was a long time ago. Um, you know, is has that come along the same way like LSD did for a while, where it was became kind of therapeutic with some people that they were yes. trying it. I mean, is that is that why they're studying the psilocybin as well now? To yeah, I mean, what's so interesting is medicine is as human as any other profession and as any other area in which people do work. So things become interesting to lots of people all at once. They become trendy and there's hype and then there's a falling off of hype. So we go through these cycles where people are very, and by people, I mean, you know, drug companies in the public, but also physicians, right. But very enthusiastic about Uh, something and then something else. So I've, I've seen us go through this once uh, already very recently where around 2018, 2019, ketamine was the new thing. It wasn't exactly new because ketamine as a sleeping medication for surgery, as an anesthesia drug has been around mm-hmm. for decades, but it started to be looked at more carefully, systematically as a treatment for depression in the early 2000s. And for a while, it seemed like it was never going to be uh, FDA approved because our FDA approval process is uh, money is very important to that process. So generic drugs don't have some companies saying, let's pour a lot of money into doing the trials that are needed in order to get FDA approval. 
So we had this generic drug that had some decent data, but if you were using it, you were using it off-label and off-label means generally insurance won't cover it. So that's where ketamine was when I was uh, in training. Then in 2019, ketamine became available in a form called S-ketamine made by a drug company who patented their oh. version or the, the drug of okay. But they, but they, uh, they said, here is our, you know, non-generic brand name version of this uh, old generic drug. And the benefit there is that they were able to get an actual FDA approval. And with an FDA approval, then what happens is, is uh, the insurance company started paying for it. So it went from being a medication that was really only available to fairly wealthy people who could mm-hmm. pay out of pocket for ketamine infusions to then being something where if you have insurance, then you can get this medication. Um, mm. ketamine and ketamine around that time was the bell of the ball. And people had lots of hope that ketamine could be helpful for all kinds of things or that it could be uh, the success rate for depression would be vastly better than anything that had mm. come before. There was lots of hope. It's not like it isn't useful. It certainly is, absolutely, but more in a more modest, reasonable way than a lot of the hype was making it seem like in the 2018-2019 period. And now we're going through this again. And by the way, I still offer ketamine and S-ketamine. It's life-saving, wonderful medication that that really can help some people. Not yeah. everyone. Just right? not everyone. Um, yeah, that's the, right? yeah, that's the difference. Yeah. That's the difference, right? So having kind of um, getting through the hype and seeing, predicting what the reality is going to be is sometimes kind Mm -hmm. of difficult Mm -hmm. when you're in the wave of enthusiasm. And right now we're in a wave of enthusiasm about psychedelics in general, not just psilocybin, but also other psychedelics out there. So conferences that physicians are going to these days, psychedelics is a really popular topic. And psychedelics are getting more publications these days because it's a hot topic. Psychedelics are appearing more in the newspapers and the magazines. And what's happening on on the end where I'm involved is that there are uh, drug companies who are doing the kinds of trials that need to be done in order to get an FDA Mm. approved. The politics aside, because of course people always try to alter science to suit their own perspectives on the world. Politics aside, generally speaking, the FDA does quite a good job in reviewing data and figuring mm-hmm. out whether something is at least safe. Well, that's good uh, to hear. Yes. <laughs> you know, they also, uh, they also do that too. I think uh, sometimes uh-huh. they get enthusiastic about something and, but, but generally speaking, I think our system with the FDA approval of drugs works pretty well to protect mm-hmm. people. And what what happens also from a financial perspective, as I said, with ketamine is if you get something FDA approved, then hopefully what should happen doesn't always it depends a lot on Medicare. But what should happen is then drug companies will um, will pay for it for people to get it. Sorry, not drug companies, insurance companies will pay for people to get it. Mm-hmm. OK, um, right. Mm-hmm. So if if, um, if this process happens with psilocybin, if the study that I'm uh, participating in has positive results showing that psilocybin, which we expect it to, but showing that psilocybin mm-hmm. will 
have a lot of benefit for people with severe treatment resistant depression, then mm-hmm. going through the drug trial process and the FDA process improves access at the end. Um, so where we're at now is a wave of enthusiasm about psilocybin. What some states are trying to do, including mine, is kind of jump the gun and legalize. And while uh, the, the thought on the surface is, oh, that will improve access, the reality, I think, is is actually the opposite. Um, because if you have something that's like <clears throat> marijuana is where it's over the counter and kind of a little bit unregulated um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Right. it's a record thing as as opposed to a a therapeutic treatment, um, then you actually make it so it's more of a middle class, upper middle class kind of uh, treatment as opposed to that um, that ends up being a a prescription medication. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's um, A, it's not surprising and, and B, that's how everything else has always gone as well. Right. Yes. I mean, it's not even a, a new process or a new outcome um, yes. that, you know, if you get this, then then these people can take it. And if you get this, everybody else can take it. And it still ends up being financially based. Everything's financially based. Unfortunately, yes. And I really wish that yeah. weren't true. And when I speak with patients, I like to talk in two worlds uh, yeah. in an ideal world where finances has nothing to do with anything. Here are the treatments that, you know, yeah. could be considered that have evidence behind them that have had studies in our reality. I want to make sure that, you know, here are the things that are most likely are going to be paid for mm-hmm. by your parents. And I hate doing that. Um, but it is actually yeah. important because you don't want to get somebody really excited about something. And then they That's realize right. it's not insurance covered. You want to, you want to make sure yeah. that um, people are able to take that into account when they're thinking about all of their options and considering what they want to do. Oh, no, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people who don't even have insurance. True. So, yes. You know, that's a whole, and you've got a whole nother group with that. So not only are they not going to get this, this drug, they're not going to get a lot of other things either. So right. it's a, uh, yeah, yeah, it's an, it's an issue. It's an issue here, you know, and has been, but this is not new. So unfortunately, yes. Okay. We won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> Sometimes it's really... nothing but issues, but I, I promise that there are actual good things that happen in medicine where people get treatments and they get well, it does happen. Oh, no, no, I agree. I, I agree. I, no, no, to- absolutely agree. Um, and, you know, and sometimes people can, can wiggle their way into getting some insurance and sometimes the, the state or whoever it is will help, but, you know, it's just not, it's the United States, you know, things aren't always equal, but anyways, um, as <laughs> much as they like to think it is. Okay. Let's, let's not go down that rabbit hole. As I said, um, which rabbit hole would you like to go down? Okay, yes. So how about um, also some of your your other work, you know, that, that you're doing, that you're excited about, what's kind of 
cutting edge, not cutting edge. I mean, there's always things that have been around for a long time and now everybody's figured out something else that it helps with or something. I mean, there's, you know. Yes, 100%. Well, so the the three treatments that I provide that are considered neuromodulation directly, so not drugs, but directly okay. stimulating the nervous system mm. are mm-hmm. electric of therapy, which has been around for decades. And it is the treatment that people sometimes refer to as electroshock, which is not a correct uh, term. That's when um, studies are being done with animals, it's electroshock because you're not actually trying to treat them when you do animal experiments. It's not the goal. When it's um, with humans, it's therapy, electroconvulsive therapy, because the goal is to to treat them. Um, With with that, the success rate for depression, for bipolar disorder, for catatonia, even a little bit less, but still compelling for, for schizophrenia, for psychotic disorders is so high that we can't not do it. I mean, electroconvulsive therapy wow. is so effective that uh-huh. that is the reason we keep doing it, despite uh, portrayals in the media that are quite negative, wow. despite lots of... Um, financial and other system pressures uh, that make it hard to provide this treatment, despite mm-hmm. um, Scientologists and publicity about psychiatry in general, but particularly electroconvulsive therapy. Believe me, we would have no reason whatsoever to offer this treatment if it didn't work yeah. really well. That is the only reason to offer electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, and it does. It has downsides, right? So there are grains of truth in the um the kinds of negative mm. statements and fears that are out there and i try to be very upfront with patients uh with people who are considering ect about what is the truth and what is the the sort of the hyper the exaggeration but, you know, to say that electroconvulsive therapy is um, something that is easy to do and low on side effects, that's not true, right? It is actually something where you have to very carefully balance how bad is this illness? How bad is this depression? How likely is it to ruin your life if it keeps going or end your life if it keeps going versus mm-hmm. the side effects of, of ECT, um, some of which are are cognitive. So people do lose recent memories and they have a hard time uh, forming new memories, especially during the intensive course. Their ability to form new memories gets back to normal a few months after ECT. Uh, but during uh, that period of time uh, and, you know, losing some memories from a few months or six months before the ECT course, that is, um, it's understandably, you know, disturbing and it should be. Yeah. Against the benefit, right? And the benefit of ECT uh-huh. is for people with severe treatment-resistant depression who failed multiple medications, been sick for a while, so bad that they're not going to work or that they're feeling like they want to die every day. Uh, okay. yeah. um, ECT works in eight out of ten of those people, right, who are wow. from depression. So that that is why that is why we do it. That is why our patients do it, and then are really glad that they did because they feel a lot better. Uh-huh. So that's ECT. I, and I could talk about that for hours, all the details, how it works, that kind of thing. But, but then moving on yeah. to the other two, uh-huh. 
transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's also yeah. brain stimulation, but the only thing it has in common with ECT is that you're stimulating the brain and you're trying to treat a mental illness. Absolutely everything else is different. So ECT, electroconvulsive therapy is done in a hospital. It's done under anesthesia. Um, mm. and there's cognitive side effects. TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, is done in an office. You're awake sitting in a chair. It's not stimulating the whole brain. It's uh, like ECT is. It's stimulating only a very, very small part of the brain. Okay. Where the magnetic field is uh, strong. So what we're doing with transcranial magnetic stimulation with TMS is we're taking tightly wound coils of electrical wire and pulsing electricity through the coil. So that creates a magnetic field. So Faraday's law, you have a fluctuating electrical current that creates a fluctuating magnetic field. And so we put mm. the coil on your head so that the magnetic field is going down into your brain. And it doesn't, oh, wow. magnetic fields are, are infinite, but they decrease with strength really fast with distance. So the mm -hmm. Part of the magnetic field that's actually strong enough to do anything to stimulate the brain really only stimulates um, about the size of a quarter on the surface of the brain. Oh, interesting. Maybe a centimeter and a half uh, down into the brain. And it depends on which kind uh -huh. of using. There's bigger ones, there's smaller ones, but the most commonly used kind of coil that's that's about right. So TMS, I like to tell patients, you know, TMS is a tool. It's been used for research to understand how the brain works, to understand how nerves work. It's been around since the 80s. What you do with the tool makes it a treatment or not a treatment. So when okay. we say we use TMS for uh, depression or we use TMS mm -hmm. for compulsive disorder or we use TMS off-label, but for headaches or pain conditions, we're doing different things with it. So we're taking mm. this and we might be using a different coil, but uh -huh. coil and we put it on different parts of the head and we send the pulses through the coil with different patterns at different rates. So for okay. depression, we put the coil over the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is sort of the upper forehead on the left. Uh -huh. And we send the pulses through the coil quickly at 10 hertz, 10 pulses per second. And that location and that um, a pattern of stimulation is uh, boosting the area of the brain underneath the coil by making it more active. And that is a particular part of the brain that's been seen over and over again in many studies on uh, groups of people with depression versus groups of people who don't have depression. What are the differences we can see in imaging or brain waves uh, between mm -hmm. the two groups? We see that this part of the brain tends to be the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex tends to be not as active. And this is one among oh, many wow. different abnormalities uh -huh. in the two groups. Mm -hmm. but it's a part of the brain that we can reach easily because it's mm -hmm. pretty close. Cool okay. Um, so, and when we, uh, when we stimulate that part of the brain and make it more active, it has a secondary effect on other parts of the brain that are connected. So you have this hmm. motion regulation circuit in the brain and by strengthening this part of the circuit in the, in the front, uh, you will change the firing of other parts of the circuit and make it a little bit more similar to a brain that is not depressed to the functioning of that same circuit in a brain that doesn't. Wow. That's wow. the ECT, as I said, electroconvulsive therapy works in about eight out of 10 people with severe treatment-resistant depression. TMS, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, the much more benign treatment that I just described, that works in uh -huh. six. 
So, so there's a difference, you know, the, the benignness, the, uh, the very little in the way of side effects, the ease of doing it, the, uh, the downside of that is it doesn't work in as many people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, TMS tends to, um, tends to be considered a little bit more in people who are not quite as ill as people who are, who are considering ECT. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, vagal nerve stimulation, uh, vagus nerve stimulation, VNS is a, uh, when psychiatrists and neurologists are talking about it, we are generally referring to an implanted device where mm-hmm. there is a battery pack that is in the chest uh, just below the collarbone. So if you if you pinch sort of your your skin right under the collarbone, um, you can feel that there's uh, there's some sort of looser flesh, and then under that there's uh, mm. muscle. So the battery pack gets implanted between those layers. So it's under okay. it's uh, on top of the muscle, but under some skin and, and soft tissue. Okay. And mm-hmm. the battery pack is connected to a wire that um, is. Uh, threaded up to your neck and in your neck um, sort of down a little ways between some of the muscles of your neck, uh, the vagus nerve runs and the ends of the wire are uh, wrapped around the vagus nerve. Uh, And then the wire is is tapped to hold it, um, to hold Uh it. So this is a, you can imagine a pretty significant jump from ECT or T of invasiveness is you're you're putting a device in a person as compared to ect though it actually has a much better side effect profile so it's an it's an implant but it it does not have a lot of the disadvantages uh side effects of of ect okay with with vns um we are trying to stimulate the vagus nerve which is the uh, super highway uh, of the parasympathetic nervous system, the part mm. of the nervous system that is automatic, autonomic, meaning you aren't consciously exerting control okay. on it. And it's the half that is the rest and digest. So you might have heard the terms, you know, fight or flight and rest and digest. Yeah. Fight or flight is the sympathetic nervous system. Rest and digest is the parasympathetic. And we're trying mm. to stimulate the nerve in the direction going from the body to the brain. We're not trying to uh, okay. stimulate it going down. Cause that, you know, would slow the heart rate and affect, you know, function of the gut and all of that. That's what the vagus nerve does mm-hmm. in your body. The signals going back to the brain. That's what we're trying. That's the system we're trying mm. to uh, access and use for treatment. Uh-huh. When people explain how VNS works for depression and also it works for epilepsy, it's actually used much more often uh, for epilepsy okay. than for. Okay. Depression. Okay. That makes sense. It has this, um, sort of cascading effect where the nerve sends signals to one part of the brain, which then affects another part of the brain and then another part. And in the end, uh, you've got pretty much all the parts of the brain that are involved in emotion regulation in general. So you can't point to one and say, well, that's where VNS works because it's uh, kind of all of them, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a calming effect is how I would think about it as, as in the oh, most. Okay. Okay. Way. okay. Yeah. 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 It takes the edge off little bit. Yeah. Um, and that of course is a more obvious, why would you want to do that for epilepsy? Well, because you know, sort of hyperactive cells is why people have seizures for depression. Mm-hmm. Why that works, I think is just a little bit less clear, but we're also just used to that in depression in general. 
you know, we have ideas for how things work. uh, And a lot of our ideas are good, but some of them are, well, uh, more vague than we would like. Um, But we do have very good data for VNS at this point. So I said there's Uh a study going on and there is a study going Mm. on. The study that's going on is to um, show Medicare one way or another, whether they should cover VNS because VNS has actually been FDA um, uh, approved for Uh depression since 2005. But what happened at that time is the FDA looked at the data and said, okay, yeah, good enough for us to say this is fine to use. Medicare, CMS looked at the same data and said, well, it's not good enough for us to pay for it. So (laughs) so it's been in this nebulous place since then where it is, you know, an officially FDA sanctioned approved whatever treatment for depression, but then Uh we can get it covered. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why, that's why the study is being done and why it's a very interesting mix of, I have some patients who have VNS as part of the study and I have other patients who have VNS where um, through uh, much, uh, many levels of appeal, we were able to get it covered by their insurance. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And so those, so that's the spectrum of, uh, of some of the general stimulation treatments. There are others out there that have much less data are, mm. you know, seem to be up and coming over time. The okay. one of them is transcranial um, uh, direct current stimulation, where it's basically uh. battery and two leads and putting them on your head. Mostly that's been studied in people who are not very ill or who might not even have clinical depression at all. Um, uh-huh. But it's it's coming in that direction. I think it's not a very good treatment at the moment that I would say has any advantage over antidepressants. So if you're mildly mm-hmm. depressed or you're trying to find the first mm-hmm. or second thing to try, this this wouldn't be up there yet in terms of the data. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's... Um, well, and the way I think about transcranial direct current stimulation is it's very similar to ECT, except you're not giving people as much electricity. Um, oh, so okay. the okay. same idea as you're sending electricity into uh-huh. the brain, and it's a matter of uh-huh. how much, right? Yeah. Uh, similarly for uh, the VNS, the um, vagus nerve stimulator implant, there are devices out there that, that claim to, and, and some, you know, probably actually do stimulate the vagus nerve from the outside, either by um, stimulating the vagus nerve where part of it runs through the ear or directly oh, holding it the neck. Um, okay. A couple issues there hasn't been studied in people who are very sick, right? Uh, the Even if it does stimulate the vagus nerve, which some of them do, I'm sure, mm-hmm. dosing is radically different than an implant. So with an implant, you know it's stimulating, right? You don't have to worry about uh, moving it around or is it getting right, right. Trying to find the right place. Yeah. 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 And how do you know you're in the right place? I mean, it's very hard to tell. Right. Um, and also you don't have to hold it there for hours when a person has a VNS, right. They are getting that stimulation uh, generally for 30 seconds, every five minutes. So the device is stimulating the vagus nerve 30 seconds, every five minutes around the clock all the time. They don't have to think Uh it's happening. Uh, so that's dramatically different dosing than an external device. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and that makes, that makes so much, so much more sense. 
you know, as well, because you can get that regularity and at a certain level yeah. and not have to be worrying about them getting too much. Are they getting too little? Am I doing it? You know? Right. Yeah. You, and if you have a VNS device, you're going into your, your doctor, me, you know, or whoever is, is um, uh-huh. managing it to, to adjust the dose. So we start with a lower dose and we increase every two weeks after this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And we try and strike that balance between um, not having too much in the way of side effects. And with VNS, what you're mainly seeing with side effects is when it fires, a person can cough or get hoarse or feel uh, short of breath as the more oh, interesting. common sort of sensory experiences. Uh-huh. We, we try to limit that, but at the same time, have it at a high enough uh, dose where uh-huh. the data yeah. on us it actually does something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's um it, that's <clears throat> excuse me that's so interesting it's like some things in life don't change right i mean that <laughs> that kind of having to just kind of watch it but go a little higher no a little lower no a little you know just, it's the old the old three bears thing right i would say treating <laughs> depression as I do, which is, it's not like I just see people with depression, but it's a huge right. chunk, you know, of my practice. It's never boring, right? There's always yeah. something that we can think about, mm-hmm. try. I don't get to a point yeah. where I say, you know what, we've done everything and there is nothing left, right? Yeah. Even if it seems that way, sometimes there's still something or there's something up and coming uh, or right. Right. two things that you tried separately before. I I encourage people not to give up. And in the depressed population, that's a hard sell because that's part of the illness is the attendance. Yeah. 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 And, but that is, it is so satisfying to try something that a person maybe had been putting off trying for a long time because it's a drug that Mm -hmm. has a dietary restriction or because they Mm -hmm. were thinking ECT was, um, as bad as portrayed in the movies or something like that. And then seeing them just right, get. Right, right, right. Or, or they know somebody, <clears throat> excuse me, they know somebody who had a bad reaction, which doesn't mean everybody's going to have a bad reaction, but it's still, you know, they just focus. Right. And, and people that. sort of um, the pros versus cons balance in psychiatry when people think about their mental health tends to be mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. Uh, as compared to if they're thinking about treating cholesterol or thinking about treating high blood pressure or thinking about treating headaches, the expectation for a lot of people seems to be, well, there shouldn't be any downside to a treatment. And if there is a downside to a treatment, then, you know, this thing that I'm suffering from, it's just not worth treating. Um, and I think that comes from a place of some stigma, you know, of mental mm. health being seen as mm. not as real or as much of a, problem as physical health or it being seen mm-hmm. as kind of a luxury to be concerned about mental health or guilt from feeling like it's your fault um because mental health problems feel a lot more like well maybe i did something to cause this than physical huh. problems. people interesting no okay it's not true by the way <laughs> not true no no the brain is as much a physical organ in the body i mean it's the best one in my opinion but it's as much a physical organ (laughs) well it's kind of important let's put it that way yeah but 
you do not have infinite control over the function of your brain cells, you know, and your body. And there are a lot of factors that go into getting sick, no matter whether you're sick with a physical illness or sick with a mental illness. And the suffering caused by mental illness is no less worthy of treatment than the physical conditions that we don't think twice about treating. Well, and it's kind of interesting because just as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, but it is a physical illness, right? I mean, it's your brain. It is. It may be something else, some chemical thing within the rest of your body as well. You know, I think that's such a misnomer that um, and there's not you know, a- that it got tagged with a long time ago. And, you know, and I, I realized I just said it too. I said, then the physical illness is, yeah. but of course you're right. And, and how do we say that language without perpetuating economy? Yeah. It's, it's very challenging. Yeah. 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 And, and, and unfortunately, when you say something is physical, most of the time people will think, oh, good. It's, it's curable. It's manageable. Right. Not- and <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, right. No, no, but I understand. But I'm, but I'm just saying it, it, that also affects people's reactions. You say, oh, it's a mental thing, an emotional thing, whatever. Right. And people are like, oh, it's out of control. Oh, okay. Can't control that. I think people feel like it goes to their character, like they're somehow weak. <laughs> and, or yeah. it goes to whether it's their fault, a similar idea. Um, mm-hmm. people- Uh, are very attracted to, um, there are conditions out there that are kind of nebulously defined that have very large communities of people who (coughs) who believe that they cause lots of symptoms of mental illness, but don't have any particular treatments that help. Um, the, uh, there, there is a temptation to want to ascribe all mm. mental health symptoms to mm. one sort of nebulous mm. physical conditions, even though it doesn't necessarily lead to better treatment options or better outcomes, because it feels more like it's not a person's fault. This is something that happened to me. Yeah. This is not something I did to myself. And I find that very sad because I don't think about mental illness as, a, as something anyone would ever intentionally do to themselves, right? No, no. Of course not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and it has a stigma. It has a stigma to it. Absolutely. And it's a killer, right? I mean, people do die of mental illness and sometimes at their own hands, right? Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, right? Mm -hmm. People with chronic psychosis uh, die very often of conditions that they don't treat or can't treat, because they are not uh, with it enough to be taking care of their physical health um, uh, and also die of those illnesses, those physical illnesses becoming worse because of the treatments they have to take for their psychosis, uh, right? So most antipsychotics uh, will worsen cardiovascular uh, conditions, hmm. you know, increase the risk of diabetes, that kind of thing. So in, in the depression world, we worry about that a little bit less because the, the drugs are for depression and bipolar disorder are actually um, not in, not in the same category, mostly as the antipsychotics. 
Um, but with poor self-care, with uh, inactivity, being in bed a lot, nutrition issues, it mm-hmm. really does wear on a person's body. Yeah. So depression is is very bad for people physically. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I know <laughs> I, we could always tell when my mom was having an episode, whatever you want to call it, um, of depression. Because she would just go sleep, go, go to sleep. She'd just go lie down and she'd sleep all day. Yeah. And then the health effects that that has on the people she's meant to take care of, care of, right? Mm. There's not just, if, a, if something goes untreated or isn't treated successfully, it's not just that person. It's the people mm-hmm. around them, right? It's the mm-hmm. it's family and society in general that suffers from us, not really uh, yeah. to these people who need our help. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. it's true. Very true. Well, on on that note, we should probably wrap up because I don't know if you have another appointment or something because we're running running over a little bit. So, um, no, I good. really appreciate. <clears throat> you know, I was gonna say I really appreciate you coming on. There was just so much more. I was like, oh, but what about what about? I thought, okay, you know. <laughs> I mean, I joke I could talk about this stuff for eight hours, but it's a really joke. It's true. I could. And you yeah, know, well, that's 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 why you, that's why you've chosen it to do. If you couldn't do that, you wouldn't be as successful, and you wouldn't be um, willing to spend the time and the effort that you're doing. Success is measured not by me, but by whether what I do actually works and helps. Yes, I and agree. I I am very glad that I am in this area of medicine because it is so nice to help somebody who feels that they haven't been taken seriously elsewhere, who Um, feels, you know, even guilty about seeking treatment. And then we, we Um, try maybe the first thing, maybe the third thing, but something works, right. And they feel, and when your mental health is better, everything else gets better too. So it's really, it's really, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's totally, I mean, and I think most people, I won't say all, but I think most people and myself included have had episodes in their lives where they've been depressed or on the, you know, on the the line of perhaps falling over into it. Um, and, you know, and they just attribute it to something else. No, I just have to get through this and I just have to, yeah. Um, so I think it's a lot more prevalent than people want to admit very much. And I didn't, I didn't come today with the latest prevalence statistics, but when you see mental illness as a whole or just depression, it still tends to be in the high single digits or double digits in terms of percentages. I mean, it's, it's not a small issue and I would encourage anybody listening to this, you know, if you have been, suffering from being feeling really down, hopeless, despair, guilty, maybe thinking even you want to die, um, not enjoying things. And it's been going on for two weeks. I mean, that, that is the definition of a major depressive episode. Um, and if, and if you know somebody who's struggling with that, even Mm -hmm. if it seems like it was caused by something, Mm -hmm the what's happening to you might not be within the normal um 
you know, or, or acceptable, uh, I, I suppose, range of, of suffering that we would say we wouldn't want to treat. If it's getting to the point where it's prolonged, where it's really impacting your function, then right. depression, and then very often seems to come out of nowhere, you know, so a lot of people have a misconception that when depression happens, or when an episode of mental illness happens, that it must be triggered by something. Sometimes it is, but very often it's not, it just feels like it, like it hits you. Um, Yeah, just kind of comes on. Just kind of comes on, right? Yeah. Uh, And there is nothing to be ashamed of in seeking help and trying to figure out how, what your options are. And if you go and talk to somebody and you don't like what they tell you about what your options are, I mean, you don't have to do anything, but at least you've heard. <laughs> you right. Know, right. And, and, or find somebody else that oh. there may be other ones that they're not, you know, they're not aware of. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think of doctors, our job is not to decide for anyone what to do. Although pediatricians mm-hmm. have a perspective on that, but in, for adults, <laughs> all physicians, our job is to um, is to present information, to be educators, yeah. to explain. Well, here's what I think is going on diagnostically, and why, and here's what the right. treatments are, and what the evidence is, and the pros and the cons. And but not decide, right? Just present yeah. information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And answer questions. Exactly. Answer the questions. So, so going to a doctor should not be scary because no. doctors should not be, you know, making you do anything you don't want to do. Right. That's not, that's not what's supposed to happen. Right. Very good point. And that, that, that's not just in your, in your field, but in a lot of other fields as well. There are some <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one thing if you have, yeah, yeah right. but, but I'm just saying, well, I, you know, you know, if, if you go in and your doctor says, oh, you have cancer, well, then, yeah, you ought to do something about it. But even then, you kind of have choices. You always have choices, right? Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're conscious, right? And talking. Thank you. Always have choices. That's right. That's right. In the same language. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that too. Yeah. <laughs> In psychiatry, that's, that's pretty much where we're at. You know, we're talking with people yeah. about what's going on and about what the options are. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Um, and it's not just talk therapy anymore. No, although talk therapy is really important, right? Oh, no, absolutely. But that used to be all there yeah. was for a long time. I think there's not enough of it anymore and it's very, mm. very under reimbursed. So it's it's uh, not something that's very rewarding to go into, and a lot of therapists are are have all the motivation in the world not to take insurance um, because uh, the system is set up so poorly for people uh-huh. to access therapy. Um, but uh, most of the people who I see have already had therapy at some point. Um, oh, I sure. know therapists who say, you know, I've seen lots of people get, go to therapy and get better. Those don't tend to be the people I end up seeing because if they get better with therapy, they don't come to me. Right. Right. Um, right. Oh yeah. 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 And it's not, it's not so much of a chemical, of a chemical kind of, you know, oh, I mean, bodily. Well, I'm just saying. No, it is. No, yeah. this is very interesting, Susan. Thank you for saying that because okay. actually a depressed brain getting better, uh-huh. it the, the changes you see when oh, it gets I'm better sure. 
are the same no matter how it got better, whether it got better. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Taking sertraline or whether it got better from doing ECT or doing TMS, the end result of how does this Uh brain different when the depression lifts is the same no matter what modality worked. So I think talk talk therapy as well, huh? Exactly. I mean, it's as well. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And we do okay. have practice as well. We have two who do um, ketamine assisted uh, psychotherapy. And the goal ah, there is to get okay. somebody's brain into a little bit of a different, more open state so they can talk through things that are harder to uh, ah. through things. Ah. They might have some um, defenses. Yeah. 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 Yeah, which is why people used to take LSD and stuff. Yes, a see again. Back around. Yeah, right. They do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has really been, been a, a very enlightening, enlightening uh, discussion. Just hearing about so many other things that that one doesn't hear about if you're not actually in the in the area. So, no, that's thank um, you for having me. That's good. And I hope that's hey. something out of this. Yeah, yes. So, I will, um, I'll get your uh, your website and all that kind of information and you know, yes. put it in the show notes. So, if people want to, um, want to contact you for more information and/or to find somebody in the area that they're in. Yeah, my yeah. practice is um, Seattle Neuropsychiatric Treatment Center, so seattleNTC.com. Okay. And um, we have, yep, I see it there. All over the Seattle metro area, so um, uh, uh-huh. Bellingham down to Tacoma. Uh, but I'm also, you know, uh, happy to have people ask questions, or our website also has mm-hmm. some of these information about some of these treatments okay. too. Great. Yeah. Good. Good. Right. Okay, well, thank you. I am going to say what I usually say, which is sort of kind of applicable, but not applicable. Just that this is not to be seen as medical advice. And it's not necessarily that neither of us are doctors, because that's not true. But all of that being said, if you are having problems, reach out to people and and talk to people and don't just take whatever we say here and then try and do it for yourself. Go get right. some help. Personalized medical advice. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. That's good. I like that. <laughs> and with that, I will say I will see everybody next week. This has been Healthy Tips After 50 with Susan Rosen. To stay on the cutting edge of the most effective health strategies, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you thought of the show with a comment or like on iTunes. Visit HealthyTipsAfter50.com for this episode's show notes, more resources, and free offers.